0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you here at State Library Victoria. My name is Anna Burkey, and I am heading up Start Space for the library, which is our new Centre for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, a new business centre that will open in 2019. So it is a great pleasure for me to be here tonight for the policy pitch with tonight's topic being about competition in the Australian economy. Before we begin, I do want to make a point of noting that we are meeting on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to any elders past and present and those who may be here with us this evening. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Caron Beaton-Wells, Dr. Stephen King and Dr. Jim Minifee. We have Grattan Institute members and staff and, of course, friends of the library here with us this evening. The policy pitch is a joint initiative between the library and the Grattan Institute, and the partnership contributes to a really important aim of the library to be a catalyst for ideas and discussion and debate. And as we go into our very exciting Vision 2020 redevelopment over the next few years, the space and time that we make available for those ideas and debate will only increase. It's an important space for discussion and reflection on policy issues. Now, StartSpace, which we will be developing, will be a really wonderful and important way for us to be able to bring together uh, entrepreneurs, individuals who may never have thought of starting up a business, together with experts. Uh, And that's something that will be growing over the next few years. But tonight, I'm particularly looking forward to hearing from our leading experts in economics and competition law. So tonight, um, our moderator will be Dr. Jim Minifee, who will lead the discussion on the role of competition policy in the Australian economy. Jim is the Director of the Productivity Growth Program at the Grattan Institute, and I'd like to welcome him to the stage to introduce our speakers for tonight. Please welcome Jim, Caron, and Stephen.
1: Thank you, Anna, and uh, thanks everybody for joining. I'm really excited about, uh, about the topic tonight. It's, um, it's a topic which is really at the heart of how we run our economy. Uh, it's part of our ideology that competition is supposed to be a good thing. And increasingly in recent years, there's been a lot of concern, particularly emanating out of the US, that competition is not working in the way that we would like it to. What I wanted to do before I introduce our two Uh, our two speakers is to run you through a series of slides that uh, I've created with my co-authors Lucy Percival and Cameron Chisholm who are here tonight which tries to put some facts about how Australia's uh, non-traded economy fits in the global picture of increasing market concentration and make some observations about how returns, the the profits if you like, uh, relate to aspects of of market uh, barriers to entry across the economy. So bear with me. I'm trying out these preliminary slides, um, which could change before our final publication, which give you a bit of a, a fact base about the about our non-traded economy. So what we chart on this first on this first slide on the vertical axis is the market share of the biggest four firms, and on the x-axis, on the on the horizontal axis is the output share of individual sectors across all of our non-traded economy. And the big takeaway uh, that that I think you can see is that there's about a third of output, excluding the traded part of the economy, which of course is subject to competition from overseas, that uh, is either medium high or very high on this measure of market concentration. And those sort of facts have been uh, a source of concern for some commentators on the basis that they could be associated with market power that firms might be exercising, whether to restrict output and get high prices and high profits, or possibly to you know, soften the, the incentives to innovate and so forth. Um, but, but, but I think it's important to recognise that when you, when you zoom out and look at Australia in the global context, many, many economies have a number of sectors where a small number of firms have significant market share. So to the extent that we've got a problem with market power, it's something that is not unique to us. This is a chart about the banking sectors of a range of economies and on the y-axis, the the vertical axis, is the three three firm market share, the biggest three firms. And then again, you've got population on the right axis. And you can see that Australia is about... uh, you know, in the pack, on at least this measure of concentration in that very major sector. Um, uh, Another example, supermarkets. You've got very large economies at the top, like the US, Germany, the UK. Down the bottom, you've got much smaller economies, Ireland, Portugal, Belgium, and so forth. And you can see that many of those economies have got high concentration, but we are unusually high on that measure in that sector. So the story differs a bit across sectors, but it is certainly not the case that we are unique in having some sectors with very high market shares. I've now got a couple of slides about time trends. So what this chart shows is, in orange, the revenue of the biggest 50 firms in the economy going all the way back to 1992 as a share of GDP. And you can see that there really hasn't been much of a trend Something of an uptick, particularly during the, the resources boom, if you include mining and metals firms, which, of course, are tradable producers. But otherwise, it doesn't seem like there's much to, to, uh, to see when it comes to an increase, a putative increase, in the, if you like, the market share of the largest firms in the economy. And there are other measures that give you a similar picture. The story, of course, becomes much more pressing and interesting once you drill down to particular sectors, on the, what we've got here is time trends for the largest three firms in mobile telecos. Uh, you've got supermarkets in the middle with the market share of the two large uh, supermarkets. And then you've got banking over time on the right here with the four largest banks. And you can see that on the left two columns there's a tendency for some decline in market share of those large firms and, uh, and an opposite trend in banking. And, you know, there are facts about mergers post the global financial crisis that seems to have driven up the market share of the large banks. Whereas in supermarkets, you've had the entry of firms like Aldi and Costco and so forth tending to progressively erode, at least to some extent, the market share of the large, uh, the large supermarkets. Now, I, I want to I turn to, um, to our, our best effort at Grattan to produce an imitation Jackson Pollock slide. So this, what we've charted here is the four-firm market share on the horizontal axis of every non-traded sector that we had enough data to characterize and on the vertical axis we've got the profitability the average profitability of firms working in in those sectors and you can see that there's a huge spread of profitability across the economy and maybe a slight tendency for the most concentrated sectors to be more profitable but also the spread at that end of the chart is extremely large, reflecting, among other things, the fact that just a few firms are material to each of those sectors. By definition, they've got a very high market share and firms differ greatly. Whereas at the far left of the chart, where no firm has got much market share, you can see that sectors tend to cluster much more around what you would think of as a a sort of competitive return on equity. But having having noted all that spread, nevertheless, it is quite notable that Some of what you might think of as the usual suspects, the supermarkets, wired telcos, wireless telco, are earning very, very high return on equity, and we've adjusted this in various ways that I can go into. The banks do pretty well, but they're also very, very large. The bubble sizes here are the equity, the shareholder equity, uh, or a measure of that uh, in, in the economy. But it's clear that concentration per se is not the story, and I don't think any competition economist would tell you that that But that's the story. Now, before before we get into the discussion, let me just wrap up with three slides that cut into this data. First, by looking at what we assert are natural monopoly-type sectors. Sectors where you'd only really expect to have one player, at least for a local market. Things like electricity transmission, you're not going to have multiple competitors in a given market. Airports have got quite a significant natural monopoly characteristic. Ports, water transport terminals, electricity distribution, wild telco. And you can see there's a subset of those markets where firms are earning very, very high returns. And, uh, and, and nevertheless, their total excess profit arguably is not huge compared to the amount of capital that's allocated. So there might be 3 or $4 billion of excess profit by our measure across those sectors. Similar sort of number across what we think of as highly regulated sectors. Health insurance, banks... <sighs> And then a lot of gambling all te- seem to earn supernormal returns, but there are some that are earning subnormal returns as well in this sector. Um, and again, the sheer size of the banks really stands out there. A final group of, of, uh, of sectors is sectors that have got economies of scale, which might be a network effect, like in supermarkets, where your distribution system and logistics system gives you a strong cost advantage over firms that aren't as large or don't have as dense a network of stores. And you can see quite strikingly high returns in liquor and other food retailing, in wireless telco, credit cards, the Australian Stock Exchange itself itself does very well, supermarkets, internet service provision, and then some of the platform. That that last uh, column on the right is some of those platform firms like Seek (laughs) or realestate.com, internet publishing firms. Now, before we get into the discussion, let me just note The fact that a sector is earning high returns could be due to market power but it might also be due to economies of scale it might be if you break up these large powerful firms that you could increase the cost base in the in the uh, in the industry but nevertheless these groupings do map into how competition regulators at least to some extent think about how competition operates and what to do about it and so with no with no further ado having done that whistle stop introduction through some of the fact base let me quickly introduce our two speakers for the evening. Uh, Professor Karen Beaton Wells is at the University of Melbourne's Law School. She runs the Competition Law and Economics Network. She's published very widely on a number of aspects of competition law, including in particular recently around cartels, which are a critical part of how concentrated sectors can go wrong from the consumer standpoint, and we'll talk more about those things. And she's widely sought as an expert in competition law. So Karan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Our second uh, speaker is Stephen King who uh, joined the Productivity Commission this year. He's had a number of interesting roles over time including as a Commissioner at the ACCC and also in a previous life as a Professor of Economics both at Monash and at Melbourne University with a long-standing interest in competition and in industry economics. I can't think of two more um, appropriate and well-matched people to have a discussion with about competition in the economy and so if I could invite you to come up and join me and we can uh, we can start the discussion so to to kick off I think it's appropriate to start with the once-in-a-generation review of competition policy law and institutions that Ian Harper led in 2014 and 2015. Uh, as, as I alluded, from time to time, governments will commission such a such an exercise. They don't pay off the year they're done. They tend to set an agenda for a significant period of time, and they're difficult to, just, to digest in the first instance. There's a lot of content in these in these occasional reviews. And so, if I can start with a with a lowball question, a really easy question for both of you, and perhaps Karan, if you want to kick off. So, what is the policy agenda for competition, and was there anything missing in the Harper Review?
2: Thanks, Jim, and thanks very much to you and the Grattan Institute for the invitation to participate this evening. Um, So, the Harper Review was really styled as Hilma Mark II, and that's a reference to the wide-ranging review on competition in the economy chaired by Professor Fred Hilmer in the mid-1990s and that led to the introduction of national competition policy which has been credited, including by the Productivity Commission, with jumpstarting uh, economic growth in our economy, lifting living standards and contributing substantially to household income. So. Why did we need a Mark II, given all of that great work that was done and was seen to be so successful in so many ways? Well, there were concerns about productivity starting to stall uh, in the Australian economy. And both sides of politics... Uh, have been equal supporters of competition policy and associated microeconomic reforms. So there was strong support for taking a fresh look to see what had been left behind uh, by the Hilmer's, uh committee's work and its implementation. But the Harper review was styled as actually something even more far-ranging than what was done by Hilmer, and that was to look not just at competition policy, but to look at our competition laws and our competition institutions. Um, And the Harper review process was an extensive one, wide-ranging consultation, issue papers, draft papers and a final report, much of the recommendations of which were accepted, some of which were highly controversial. Um, and now we are down to the hard work of implementation. So we can get into some of the specifics, but competition policy remains very much on the agenda with bipartisan political support as a very important lever in our suite of microeconomic policies in Australia, consistent with the approach around the world.
1: We were were talking before we came in about the um, notorious section 46, which... Quite a lot of attention. Um, that's a, a section of the Competition Consumer Act which Harper proposed be changed uh, in a way that will make it easier for prosecutions to be undertaken around the misuse of market power. There was quite a lot of contention about that. Do you think that got an appropriate amount of attention, Stephen? Or in the in the bigger picture, would you say that, you know there's a lot else in the report and perhaps of of equal or greater import? competition?
3: Yeah, the second 46 changes got a lot of publicity. Um, They became obviously very political in Australia. Um, I personally think that uh, uh, the changes of removing of take advantage uh, which is part of the change to that particular bit of law um, is a bad idea but you know we can we can debate that back and forth and it has been debated back and forth. It did tend to overshadow some other changes that were probably more important. And just to pick on one, uh, Harper recommended, and it's going through Parliament now, uh, the introduction of uh, essentially facilitating practices, uh, rule or uh, issue within our competition law. So um, to give an overseas example um, of where this has been used, uh, one famous case from the US, a uh, company advertises in advance, a large company advertises in advance, that it's going to put up its prices in a couple of months, so it's just telling its consumers. Um, it then uh, if its uh, rivals don't also happen to advertise, Uh, within a couple of uh, days that they're doing the same thing. Well, guess what? Uh, That company re-advertises and says, well, we've changed our mind and we're actually going to reduce prices and you guys are going to learn better in the future for you guys being the competitors. So these ideas that you can create institutions or uh, norms in a marketplace by which firms can collude without them sitting in a smoke-filled room. So that's a huge change to our law. I don't think anyone completely knows what that's going to do to business practice in Australia. We're not going to know until some cases get before the courts. Uh, an excellent first case would have been the informed sources case, uh, one that uh, the ACCC settled probably about 12 months ago now, where the petrol retailers all used a third party to exchange price information. That would have been a great one to test under this new bit of law. Unfortunately, it, uh, it won't be. But that's the sort of thing that I think should have got more publicity, certainly needs more and better understanding by the business community, will make big changes, but has gone under the radar.
1: Karana, are there any missed opportunities in Harper? Uh,
2: Before I answer that, I can't resist the opportunity to uh, respond to some of Stephen's comments. Um, I don't think the Section 46 changes were overblown in terms of the level of debate they attracted, because just to tie in with the comments you made at the start, our law and our policy has never been to penalise the possession of market power per se, because market power, as you pointed out, could be attained through exceptional performance, through meeting and anticipating consumer needs, through driving down costs of production, through innovating. But our law does rightly try to capture and deter and ultimately, if necessary, penalise misuse, or we sometimes refer to it as abuse of market power, because that does have very serious uh, adverse effects on, on competition and the competitive process. So getting that prohibition right, both as to the economic analysis, that should be reflected in the law, and as to the workability of its enforcement, is extremely important to the cogency and effectiveness of our competition laws. Um, Stephen is right, however, on, on flagging the importance of the other prohibition that was recommended and will be introduced into our law, and that's the prohibition on concerted, or sometimes called, facilitating practices. In particular, where that relates to information sharing, or sometimes referred to as tacit collusion amongst businesses, where Business people don't have to meet in a room or talk in code on prepaid mobile phones, but are able to signal to each other through their conduct in the marketplace as to how they intend to set prices or set output levels. And that leads to a degree of coordination and removes the uncertainty for competition. So it is a very important uh, amendment. And yes, as you say, we'll have to watch with interest as to how it's going to be implemented. Uh, In terms of one other gap, uh, um, to come back to the initial question, that I think was left by the Harper review, and the one I would single out is private actions, because we very much rely for enforcement on our competition, in our competition laws on the ACCC, on public enforcement, but the ACCC only has so many resources and a limited enforcement budget Um, and just simply cannot be expected to detect or where it does detect to take action in the case of uh, every um, instance of serious anti-competitive conduct. In other jurisdictions, particularly the US, 90% of enforcement is undertaken by private claimants who have very strong incentives, particularly in the form of treble damages, to take that action, and that complements and boosts the public resources and activities um, of the uh, government agencies. Harper really gave that short shrift. There were a few recommendations around lifting hurdles for private claimants, but they were at the margins, and some very significant obstacles still remain. Mm.
1: And While we were talking before, you would have perhaps added to that list the use of data in the competition context as well as being something that needs more attention.
2: Yes, I would definitely add that. Um, That's not to say necessarily as a criticism of Harper because really uh, governments and competition agencies around the world have been slow to come to grips with and are still very much trying to navigate the challenges posed by data-driven sectors and large companies. So while Harper did certainly in setting the context for the review, point to the rapidity of technological change as something that was going to have to be taken into account in the context of competition policy and law. Unfortunately, there wasn't much further analysis on just what does it mean for our economy that now, you know, we, across the world, the five most powerful companies are data-driven companies, and of course I'm referring to Apple, Facebook, Google, uh, Microsoft, and Amazon, um, and they are their power lies in their collection and their use of data, and that has enormous implications for competition, but for privacy, cybersecurity, and a range of other um, public policy areas. Well, I,
1: I hope we can come back to that in the course of the discussion. Now, Stephen, there was a long list of what you might think of as the usual suspects uh, of potentially, in some cases, relatively minor reforms that Harper noted have been. Left undone since the early 1990s, whether it's retail trading hours, or pharmacy location res- and ownership restrictions, or shipping and so forth. Now, that not all of these were in the in the government's response were quote unquote agreed to. They were, I think, the technical term was they were noted yep. on the way through, which um, I think I think I read you you said might have been um, you know the government prudently choosing its battles. Do you think they ought to pick up some of these battles, or have they, uh, have they decided how much they ought to bite off in this area and focused yeah, on I a mean- more positive agenda?
3: I th- I, it, you know, it's horses of course, it depends. Let's do a couple of simple examples. Um, Potato Marketing Board uh, has finally gone from Western Australia. I expect to hear a cheer for things like that. <laughs> in Western Australia, I was a regulator over there for uh, six years. You can't import, or you couldn't import... Evil East Coast potatoes into Western Australia because you have no idea what a potato you know growing out near Port Ferry could do to a you know the sensitive digestive systems of a, uh, a West Coaster. Um, it finally got removed only because uh, one farmer got put in jail. Um, same way, by the way, that uh, our uh, retail trading hours uh, restrictions got removed in Victoria, going back to the Kennet years. Um, the, the government has to pick its battles. It has to be. In in some cases, the fights aren't worth it um, and technology and change will eventually make the restrictions uh, uh, redundant, and we've seen that with Uber and taxis being the most obvious. In some cases, the restrictions cause real pain and suffering. Um, a simple example, uh, what, one of the things that hasn't been really picked up very well by the press over here, one of the main reasons for the slow response uh, in uh, getting relief surprise to Puerto Rico uh, post the uh, hurricane over there is a thing called the Jones Act. It's their version of cabotage. You can only ship materials between two US ports, which includes Puerto Rico, on ships that are made and manned in the US. Not just, you know, so you can drive around in a BMW truck or a Mercedes truck and take the stuff to the port, but when it gets to the port, you've got to put it on a US-made ship. The US doesn't make relevant ships anymore. So they have finally got around to a couple of days ago suspending the Jones Act so they can get relief supplies in. You know, it's simply madness. We have cabotage in Australia. So you've got to really question... You know, those are laws that are redundant. They may have been brought in for a good reason. Jones Act was due to uh, World War I excessive shipping supplies. Sort of in a different century now, 100 years later. Maybe it's time to revisit some of these things, not just in Australia but elsewhere. Final thing I want to mention. Got to be very careful when looking at the data. Now, I've just finished the review of pharmacy remuneration and regulation. Um, the final report hasn't yet been released by the government, so I can't talk about what's in it but you would have noted that uh, when Jim put up a rate of of a return on equity slide on some industries, that some regulated industries don't seem to be making high return on equity. Aha! Therefore, the restriction doesn't matter. Wrong. In the case of pharmacy, it's built into the price of pharmacies. When you sell a pharmacy, all the monopoly rents get built into the price. Go out and try and buy a pharmacy. If you're a pharmacist, by the way, you can't buy one otherwise... But if you're a pharmacist, go out and try and buy a pharmacy. You'll find out how much it costs because it's got all of those rents built in because of the restrictions. So you've got to be very careful when looking at the data. When you say, oh, they're not making excessive returns, of course they're not now. It's the taxi licence problem. You're paying $500,000 for a taxi licence because it's got all the rents built in. It's actually a puzzle to me why pharmacies are so
1: low because we actually did make that correction on every sector that we could. So we'll need to look into that further. So for example, you see Coal's earning a relatively low return on equity on its West Farmers business, mm-hmm. but the underlying business unit continues to earn, we estimate, about as, as much as Woolworths does, which is well over 20%. So if, if we just zoom back then, so Harper's set this very broad agenda. We haven't spoken much, and maybe we don't have time now to touch on some of the institutional reforms in terms of who should play what role and so forth, which is a big issue if you're a practitioner in this field, but potentially from a policy perspective, uh, looks somewhat arcane. But one of the issues that I think really does get to the heart of how competition functions is is around cartels. We touched on the concerted practice issue, but Coron, in correspondence prior to this event, you noted that cartels are often thought of as the supreme evil uh, the most egregious part of anti-competitive conduct, because it's a situation where two entities who we think of as competitors actually work in, in concert. Do you think we've got the rules and the penalties and the, um, the whistleblower protection about right in that field, or are we still far from what we need to control cartels in this country?
2: Well, just to link back to your opening, Jim, and the reason why we should talk about cartels when we talk about market power and concentration all in the same breath is because, of course, when we talk about cartelization or collusion between businesses, we're talking about instances where firms are able to gain and exercise power jointly that they would not otherwise be able to exercise independently. So it's another route to market power, uh, where it cannot be gained and exercised unilaterally. So, yes, the supreme evil, because we are talking about instances here where the harm to the competitive pro- uh, process can be egregious, uh, in cases where firms, for example, allocate customers or geographical territories between them there's a complete elimination of competition not just competition on price but competition on quality competition on range competition on convenience and other non-price factors so there is a international consensus that you need stringent laws with strict liability that is Liability that will attach without the requirement to prove an effect on competition because that can be presumed when you're talking about price fixing or market allocation. And you need (coughs) sanctions of the toughest, scariest type, which generally means jail terms for white collar um, people in the C-suites. Uh, And it will only be through those mechanisms that you will adequately detect and uh, deter and ultimately if you need to punish collusion. Have we got the rules right? Well, I think we are about to fill a gap in the rule book with the introduction of a prohibition on concerted practices because business people now, in particularly in big businesses, they know this conduct is illegal. Even if they don't know what the text is on the statute, they just have an intrinsic sense uh, that there's something wrong about talking to your competitor about your future prices. Um, And increasingly, they know that dire sanctions or there's a significant threat uh, of scary sanctions if they breach these laws. So um, there is that understanding and it means that cartels have gone underground. and and business people have become more creative, more sophisticated in the way in which they achieve the same effects of coordination with the same adverse implications for consumers than if they were to explicitly collude. So I think we have getting the rules right. I think we've got the right sanctions on the books since 2009. We've had criminal sanctions for uh, serious cartel conduct, which includes a maximum jail term of 10 years which rates cartels as highly as many other uh, felonies, um, including white-collar crimes. But we are only just starting what is a marathon in building the capacity to effectively use those um, criminal sanctions.
1: So we should come back to some of the data-related or online-related challenges to traditional detection and enforcement of cartel behaviour before before this discussion's out. I'll just move on to a, a totally different dimension of the competition law, which is around, I guess economists spend most of their time, for good or evil, thinking about efficiency, but there's this strand in competition law around fairness and unconscionability, and those are sort of um, bases for actions that have been used, for example, with respect to supermarkets, treatments of their suppliers. Coron in the first instance, but perhaps Stephen as well if you've got, uh, if you've got an interest, is, is this a arena of competition law that's functioning effectively and that can play an appropriate role alongside the more, if you like, efficiency focused aspects of the law or is it somehow a hangover from the courts of equity back in the 1600s and uh, an area that's not really adding value?
2: It's a good question, um, and and many might react to the idea that um, competition and fairness shouldn't appear in the same sentence. Certainly you, you commonly get that reaction from economists because competition by its nature um, might well be unfair. Um, if competition is really working, it can be brutal. There will be casualties. Uh, there will be blood on the floor. Those who are inefficient uh, and can't compete effectively will be... Uh, seriously injured, if not eliminated. So, competition, fair, do the two go together? Well, interestingly, the research we've done around supermarkets suggests that there is an interdependency, a connectedness between competition and fairness. Um, And that is perhaps the reason why, in our Competition Act, we have provisions not just relating to competition and consumer protection, which are also synergistic and connected, but laws also relating to fair trading. Fair trading um, is not a a competition issue as such, not facially, um, it's about, responding to asymmetry in bargaining power, which is quite common in our economy, particularly given the concentrated nature of many of our sectors, where you have a small number of big firms and then you have a fringe of smaller firms, um, either suppliers or customers, trying to negotiate with those big players. And so a real imbalance in, in bargaining power, which can generate problems of fairness. Why why do we worry about that if our primary objective is competition? Well, we worry about it because over the long run uh, if those smaller suppliers or customers can't get transparency in their dealings with the bigger players, can't get certainty over the long run in their contractual arrangements, um, they're either going to consolidate, so we'll see even further concentration um, in in different levels of a market, um, or they are not going to have any incentives to invest and innovate and give us the diversity we want as consumers because we don't just want low prices. We want choice, uh, and for choice you need diversity, which means you need big and you need a healthy range of small as well. So bargaining power and, and the linked issue of fairness is in fact very important to competition as well as important just socially, I think.
3: Stephen? Stephen? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, good and bad reasons to pursue fairness. So let's, let's think of a good side first. Um, when you're talking about some small businesses, they are no more sophisticated than consumers. Uh, they're often consumers in most of their life and then they're running a small business on the side. And uh, when I was at the ACCC, there were plenty of cases, often involving franchises, where we'd just sit there and shake our heads and say, why did you sign that contract? Oh, well, it seemed like a great opportunity at the time. Did you read it? No. Did you get legal advice? No. So, in some ways, there is a group of small businesses out there who, probably a bit like consumers, need to be covered by those laws that add add the extra protection, that we don't think they're sophisticated, uh, all-seeing, all-knowing business people who are looking for the best way to get the next buck. That's on the good side of the fairness. The other part on the good side is, as Karan said, when there's uh, big differences in bargaining power and there are economic consequences of that. So if you've got the two big supermarkets slugging it out um, and both uh, having an incentive to be opportunistic with regards to certain suppliers, well, those suppliers will eventually leave the market and the two... Supermarkets will have to say, well, you know, where do the new suppliers come from? Now, they may then invest back, they may vertically integrate, but that creates other barriers to entry if someone else like LD or an IGA or somebody else wants to access those supply chains. So there are economic reasons behind fairness. But, and this is the big but, fairness is often used as an excuse to say, let's not have competition. Because yeah, competition can be pretty ruthless. And when uh, I'm competing with Quran, you know, that may just not be fair because Quran's a lot better than I am at this particular industry. And, you know, it's just not fair. And so we've got to be very, very careful when fairness is just used as an excuse get the government to come along and say, well, look, we can't have too much competition here, and the guys who were losing in competition war because consumers didn't like their product will go, thank God for that, and now I'm protected. So we've really got to be very careful with that word fairness. It's also interesting... In the Sorry, Karan.
2: Sorry, Jim. Um, I, I can't resist responding to, to Stephen, and, and, and for some of the audience, this might get a bit fluffy. but. Um, I think fairness is a very subjective um, concept and everyone's going to have a very different idea of what's fair or unfair. But I don't think we should underestimate the importance in Australian society and our attachment to what you might call egalitarianism or you might know better as the fair go. Um, I actually think that is quite important to our social order and to our identity as Australians. So often when people say, say in the context of of supermarkets, that's just not fair, um, they're expressing um, a social reaction um, about a value that um, we have in Australian society and not necessarily just an economic consequence. And I think politicians are responsive to that.
1: In that context the harper recommendations which were accepted by government to permit small firms to collectively bargain is is relevant as well and it's quite striking that collective bargaining is not a form of competition i mean you've got you've got really an acceptance inside that competition framework of a totally different mode of coming to a deal which which to my my mind is quite striking but the other aspect that i wanted to become just aware of time is around the, the you know you picked up that people possibly haven't read all of the fine print and more more generally when you look at consumer behavior what we see is that sometimes the outcomes of competition have not been what economists suggested and there are people in this room who I know have written on this topic to note that when consumers are averse to assessing options which they might find complex or they're putting them off or even once they've figured out that they're on a bad deal, they seem to be very resistant to actually making the switch. You do have to ask yourself if you like a utilitarian question, which is, well, are we in favour of competition just purely on the basis that, in principle, almost ideologically, it's something that we think ought to be the principle on which society runs, or are we actually making a case for consumer welfare? So you go to retail power, for example, you can do the same thing in superannuation, where there are many consumers who are clearly on dominated products year after year, and then there's a subset of people who are assiduous enough to navigate their way through the complexity and find themselves a good deal. And so, to my mind, that calls into question the arenas in which you say, well, all right, it's caveat emptor, it's buyer beware, go for your life competitors, and if the consumers are asleep, or don't care enough, or they've got other concerns, or the product's too complex, that's not our problem. To my mind, that is an area where I think the role of competition in our society needs to be investigated and potentially improved. Do, do you see
3: that opportunity, Stephen? Yeah, well, you've just made a justification for competition and consumer laws. Um, That's why we have these laws. Um, Competition works a lot of the time. Um, It works really well some of the time. In fact, it works really well a lot of the time. But there are some sectors where we know it won't work. There are some sectors where we've tried to shoehorn competition in and... You know, it's not clear that that competition has worked. I noted one of the high return on equity um, industries that you had up there was electricity distribution. Surprise, surprise. We have a competitive electricity distribution sector, except it sort of ends up being massively highly regulated and the benchmarking that was meant to be done under the original reforms when they broke up the, the State Electricity Commission here in Victoria was never done, so the proxies for competition were never done. So... You know, there's, you know, there's no magic bullet. People who say come out and say, oh, economics says we always prefer competition to be alternative. Well, I'm not sure what economics they read because that's not in any economics I know. But people who say competition is a bad thing, we should get rid of it and have something else. Fine, show me the something else because nobody's come up with it so far. And where we get rid of competition and where we try and replace that with some sort of regulation... Um, you know, you get the results. You actually end up with something that looks pretty bad from the perspective of a consumer and the perspective of Australia.
1: Well, I'm just aware of time. Can we shift now to a couple of sector-specific issues and then I'm sure there'll be people who've got perspectives and questions that we should get to. Uh, Karan, you've done a lot of work on supermarkets over time. So supermarkets are a a huge part of our retail experience. They generate directly in their own value add about 1% of GDP and employ almost a quarter of a million people. Um, As as I noted earlier, it's, it's a sector that at least in recent years, potentially to a lesser extent these days, has been dominated by the two major players. Have we got the rules about right for that major sector?
2: Well, Jim, I don't think there should be rules that are specific to the supermarket sector. I think we have sufficient policies and rules related to competition economy-wide that, if applied correctly in the context of groceries, uh, would be as effective as applied to any other sector. But there has been a spate of public inquiries and investigations into the level of concentration in grocery and the conduct of Coles and Woolworths over the last 10 years, which must raise the question, what is the problem, if there is any, and what should be the appropriate response to it? Um, Is it a competition problem, and uh, if so, what's causing it, or is it some other problem? So we've had a good look at this, and um, really, We've now had in really a consensus amongst policymakers and enforcers that despite what some people think of as Colesworth's du- duopoly, um, an anti-competitive structure in this sector, competition is actually working for consumers. Consumers are voting with their feet in their patronising of the supermarket chains because of the prices on offer, but also because of the convenience of one-stop shopping uh, and uh, also because of perceptions of range and quality. So competition seems to be workable, if that means anything to anyone, but what we've noticed is over the last 10 years, in fact, competition has been intensifying and the major factor in that, of course, has been LD, the German discounting chain, where the data tells us drives down prices 2 or 3% when you are looking at a micro market of, say, shopping area of 3 to 5Ks where consumers might switch between major supermarkets. In those markets, you will see the average price of a grocery basket 2 to 3% lower where there is an LD in that market as compared to somewhere else. Um, and we know competition is is only going to intensify further because we know Amazon Fresh is here, or at least they have a warehousing site, um, and uh, there isn't a corporate board in Australia that hasn't had a few management papers written on Amazon and what it will mean to them, and that would include our supermarkets. There is another, at least another discounting chain on the horizon. Dave Jones is looking at going high end. And more to the point, there is an increasing emergence of smaller niche online providers and food delivery services that consumers with the benefit of technology are taking up. So competition might be working too slowly for some, but it is working at the retail level. So the concerns are really about what's happening at the, at the level of suppliers, our manufacturers, and even further upstream, our primary producers, and whether the buying power of Coles and Woolworths is going to be hurting dynamic efficiency, that is, incentives to invest and innovate in our supplier base. Those are, I think, legitimate concerns, and the government is onto to them. Uh, it has taken several steps, including introducing a statutory code that is intended to regulate supplier-retailer dealings in that sector. So that's certainly on the government's uh, radar and I have to say, ultimately it's competition that is driving those retailers to rethink their approach to suppliers anyway and to become smarter in partnering with uh, and treating suppliers well, because without suppliers uh, they're not going to be able to compete.
1: So what's striking is that, nevertheless, these these processes do operate on a, almost a decade-by-decade timescale. So, Woolworths and Coles still continue to earn very attractive returns. Their market shares decline, but ever so marginally. And so, it, it feels to me like this is a discussion that we could well be having in another decade. And you you look to seeing, hopefully, over time, the government can find opportunities to, if you if you like, ensure that the those market power of those major players is not being used to cement their position
2: Yeah, well, i i would put down the level of political attention and public angst about our supermarkets to two things um, one in fact what's driven the debate uh, in the last five years has has been concerns about farmers and primary producers uh, and the search for a, 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 a cause for the plight um, of, of our rural sector and the communities that they support and serve. Um, but if you ask the farming federations and, and those who are steeped in agriculture and rural policy, they will say that the list of policy challenges facing primary production in Australia is long, and the buyer power of Coles and Woolworths is one of those challenges, but it's almost at the bottom of the list. First, you've got to talk about international commodity prices. You've got to talk about underinvestment in infrastructure. You've got to talk about seasonal fluctuations and climate change. There are a whole raft of other issues, uh, but unfortunately, Coles and Woolworths are are readily characterised as the villains because they're obvious uh, and um, they're easy to target. Uh, And and the public sympathises. You know, we are attached to our farmers, and, and this is a country that's grown up on the sheep's back, so, uh, you know, we're a sympathetic, uh, but it doesn't translate into our behavior. You know, when supermarkets say, okay, okay, you don't all want to buy own brand milk at a dollar a litre, we'll put on the shelves a choice for you so you can directly support your farmers at a higher price point, it doesn't move. Uh, so so consumers are fickle, um, and that's problematic for policymakers and politicians.
1: Let me do one final uh, gear shift before we open to questions. In some respects, the most controversial part of the Harper recommendations was about the expansion of competition into human services. What Harper noted was that there are still wide swathes of really critical human services, whether it's in, let me give you a a list that was put forward by by Harper, social housing, public hospitals, end of life care services, public dental services, services in remote Indigenous communities, family and community services, in which choice and competition do not play a significant role today. Now these are all services that are intensely important to the community. And there's been a great deal of community scepticism that applying let me put it in a slightly pejorative way, the ideology of competition in in those realms will lead to for-profit extraction of value from sectors that really matter to the community. Now, Stephen, you've, uh, among other things, in your time at the Productivity Commission, worked extensively, and indeed before the PC, you've worked extensively on these opportunities, assessing them, evaluating them. Can you share something of your view about is, is this an appropriate or an inappropriate realm to apply the principles of consumer choice and competition?
3: Yeah, so starting point, though, is to separate out those two elements. So one is choice, one is competition. Competition is a tool to an end. So competition is not an end of it in itself. The key feature coming out of a Harper report is the benefits to individuals when they have choice. So they may still be receiving uh, government-funded services, but they have a choice that they can make over the types of services that they receive. And That's got two huge benefits for individuals. One is, uh, if you like, the, the hard economic one, that you can choose services that better meet what you prefer, what you think best meets your needs. Now, there are a lot of people in the human services area who say, "Oh, sorry, I I know what you need best. I'm not sure many of the recipients of human services have that view. And if you look at the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the big positive feedback there is from members of the disabled community who have said, thank you for this scheme. It is enabling us to have choice. The second thing that it does is it empowers the user. Imagine how unempowered you are, for example, as a recipient of disability services, if you were simply told you will receive these services from that person over there and if those services don't meet your needs best and if that person isn't the best supplier for you, well, sorry, someone else has made that decision. That's what disabled Australians faced for a long time in this country and the effect of a National Disability Insurance Scheme has been to empower them. And we often take that empowerment for granted. If you don't believe that, let's take a simple human service, most of us access, which is a GP. I doubt anyone in this room would be in favour of a situation where some government bureaucrat says, sorry, we will determine the GP that you're able to see. You don't get a choice of doctor. We will tell you which GP. We will tell you exactly which services you can get from that GP, when you can visit them, and that's the way that choice will be determined. So the key part of reform in human services is not competition, it's user choice. Now, to make user choice reasonable, to have choice, you must have alternatives. And often that will mean that having competitive alternatives will be reasonable. It's what we have. When we go to GPs. And when people say, oh, well, human services, shouldn't be for for-profits, it shouldn't have competition. Well, sorry, your GP doesn't see you on the basis of, hey, they're a not-for-profit, and they're just going to see you, or they're a government employee. We don't have the British National Health Service here. They are small, for-profit businesses. And you choose your GP on the basis of your experience with them, your reputation, or their reputation, how well you get on with them, the service they provide and numerous other features and you wouldn't want that taken away. Now human services covers a huge range of areas so you mentioned remote indigenous communities. You're not going to get competition in remote indigenous communities, it's hard enough to find any individual service providers that are able and capable of providing in these communities. So the idea that you're going to have competition is just fanciful. doesn't mean we should ignore user choice, however. And in a remote Indigenous community, it may be a community voice that we're interested in. It may be an empowered community to try and have community choice and community input into the services that they provide. So it is very much a horses for courses. So yes, I think it was the biggest bit of harper. We have seen some of the benefits of that through the NDIS. We're going to see a lot more benefits of this in the future as long as governments are willing to put the extra resources and this stuff isn't free. Human services is all about spending other people's money. And if you don't believe that, just think about, you know, well, uh, next time that uh, you want to get that rebate uh, through Medicare, say, "No, no, I'm not taking that. You are spending other people's money every time you go to the GP. You may be paying a top up, but you're not paying the whole fee. It's all about spending other people's money, and we have to be really, really careful, and governments need to be really, really careful when spending other people's money. But we want choice, and sometimes competition can be desirable, and there are huge gains to be made there.
1: Thank you, Stephen and Karan. Let me now open it up for for questions. It's 7 o'clock. We've got 15 minutes. Please get in early. Keep your questions short. And bear in mind, we're recording this event. If you can say who you are, and ask a succinct question, uh, that would be terrific. And, and I think it can work if we take them in groups of three questions, and then we'll try to answer answer them as a group. So there'll be uh, people from the State Library on either side. Thank you very much. So if you want to put your hand up, and we can get you a mic. There's somebody right down the front, right on the side first, and then right down here on the front.
4: Yeah. Hi. Uh, th- <clears throat> Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everyone. It's Rajat Sood. Um, we- you are talking before about um, uh, human services. Um, wh- what about the scope for competition for the market? So although you might not get multiple suppliers to an indigenous community, the government or someone else on their behalf could effectively um, create a competition for that market and contract with someone. And then also, I suppose, going back to the point that um, Jim raised about um, uh, to what extent do we rely on competition in areas where consumers are perhaps a bit, you know, inert, um, like, say, electricity retailing uh, or superannuation. And I know that Grattan's done a lot of work looking at the scope for introducing competition for those markets, so for default electricity consumers who don't really shop around and, you know, in superannuation. now, obviously, you know, we would like to rely on, rely on co- competitive markets as the institution to allocate these resources, but, but given those sort of, um, uh, you know, given that inertia amongst consumers, what do you both think about the role for, in a sense, a level of government paternalism to uh, implement that competition for those markets?
1: Great, thank you. And then right down the front here, and then is there another question, please?
3: Yeah, Tony Greco, Institute of Public Accountants. Uh, Jim, I think you started off with um, the slides where there's concentration in certain sectors and um, a lot of it's to do with barriers to entry and level of investment required. But the technology, advancements in technology have also uh, created the opportunity for NIS markets to be serviced by some of these new providers. But what we tend to see happen is that the... The major players buy up any new emerging technologies, and it sort of perpetuates the problem. So, uh, just a response to that market uh, behaviour.
1: Great. Well, why don't we take those two? So, the first first part of Rajat's question was around competition for the market, and the second was around default. Um, you know, government paternalism to try to improve defaults.
3: Yep. So. Um yeah, and, and also just very briefly on, on your one. Competition for the market. Uh, yes, yeah, so let's take the remote Indigenous communities. Obvious way to uh, get service provision there is to have tendering for service provision. What does the government do wrong there? The government often doesn't... Government sometimes can be very, very naive or myopic, whatever word you want, in their tendering processes. So, for example, um, and this has been on Four Corners and the media, um, the contract for all the maintenance of houses in Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory is run, I think, out of Darwin. It's either run out of Darwin or out of Brisbane, but it's run an awful long way from those communities. So when a tap washer goes, so you've got a leaking tap where a toilet is overflowing. They have to fly somebody into the community. Now, that's a very expensive way to do it, and if you're the service provider, you don't want to just be flying someone in for one toilet, so you'll let these jobs bank up before you bother sending somebody in. Now, we were out there talking to one of these communities, and some of the elders said, well, under the old contract, we, as in the people, the Indigenous people, we were actually provided with some of the equipment. We were able to do things like fix tap washers and just do simple maintenance. And we're not allowed to anymore. And we're sitting there saying, what madness is this? That you've said, you people who can fix this, you've got the skills, we're going to make sure that you haven't got the equipment, we're not going to uh, allow you to do it because there's a contract with somebody who's a couple of thousand kilometres away who's got to come in and fix this. And you're de-skilling the community, you're demotivating the community. So, yes... It's a great alternative, but it's got to be done properly. And I've seen so many examples, particularly in remote Indigenous communities, where it's done badly. Just very briefly on the tech and mergers, really good point. And if you look at Jim's slides, one of the issues Harper said is going OK was mergers law. I'm sort of concerned about mergers law in Australia two of his slides he showed an uptick in uh, return on equity or reduction in competition, uh, effective competition in telcos and uh, banking. And both of those, the upticks in Jim's graphs, were mergers. Vodafone taking out Hutch, which uh, I think publicly I said at the time I opposed, uh, I thought it should have been stopped, I'd just left the ACCC at the time, so I didn't count anymore. Um, And uh, the bank mergers, I was there during the bank mergers, Uh, we didn't think we could stop them, Uh, certainly St George Westpac, CBA West, uh, Bank West was a bit of a different matter because that was during the crisis and their parent had gone bankrupt, but St George Westpac, uh, we didn't think that uh, could be stopped under our current merger laws. Um, but it seems to be associated with a reduction in competition in Jim's graphs. So, uh, yeah, I'm worried about our merger laws. Maybe we need to be tighter there.
2: I can respond very briefly, I'm just given we want to hear some more questions. But um, on the point about consumer inertia and government paternalism, well, haven't we just seen that in energy with the Turnbull calling in the um, the big power companies and saying, get those low socioeconomic customers off your high deals, um, which they are now acting pronto on. So, you know, when things do go wrong, um, there is a role for government not just to steward Um, but to actually get in and row, and um, I think we've seen that. Um, On on the question down here, um, I I think banking is an excellent example of uh, a sector where we've got a situation with the big four sitting very comfortably in the um, haven of the four pillars policy, but having been able to cherry-pick and take up the challenger and the maverick firms, whether it was Bank of Melbourne, St George, Rams, Aussie home loans, you know, it's a long list of those who have sought to take on the big four, only to be swallowed up. So, uh, unfortunately, Harper didn't do anything on the substantive merger test, which remains substantial lessening of competition, uh, or in the way in which it's interpreted and applied by the ACCC. But what I think it did rightly encourage the ACCC to do is more ex-post evaluations of mergers. Let's take a look back at a sector where merger has been let through three, five years later and say, well, did we get our assumptions and our predictions about the future with and without this merger right? And some of the results of those reviews might be very telling.
1: I think we've got time for another quick round. There's a question in the middle on the right, and then one right in the middle of the group. Am I missing anybody else?
3: Yes. Uh, John Freeman, you, you pointed to the issue of asymmetric information for the human services and also for the supermarkets. What role do you see in government trying to sort of bridge this information gap? I just think of myself as going to the health system. And I have not the faintest clue what each hospital is going to do to me, or what each specialist. And so I just fall into whatever this guy says.
1: That's not competition. That's fair. And a question right in the middle.
4: Thanks. Uh, Brendan McRae, Just, um, it seems like there's a fair bit of action in Europe at the moment with some of the um, anti competition um, sort of cases brought against some of those big data people. Just, you know, thoughts on that and is that going to come here, or, or is that a good or a bad thing?
1: So I think that's it for this round. Caron. Uh,
2: yes, on, on information asymmetry, yes, of course, um, all of us are in that same boat. I'm in that boat. When I go to get my car repaired, I wouldn't have a clue when they tell me what they've done and then justify the huge figure at the end of the bill. And I go, well, that's good. Okay. Thank you. And I get my credit card out. So. We are in that situation and that is the very reason, as Stephen's pointed out, that we have in the one act and in the one enforcement agency not just a set of competition laws and enforcement but consumer protection because it's all very well to give consumers choice and diversity, they'll only be able to activate that choice if they have the relevant information and they understand it Um, and that also is reasons why we have things now called unfair contract terms laws. That is, laws that are intended to stop companies from putting in front of us some highly complex set of fine print that one, will never read, and two, if we did, we would never understand. So there are laws uh, there that are intended to protect us um, in that way. Uh, on the question about Europe, look, the European Commission is in fact leading the competition agency world in um, thinking through and take, taking action against some of the big... Tech companies. And of course, the big news earlier this year was the um, knee wobbling 2.4 billion euro fine against Google for the way in which um, it was organizing and um, displaying its search results and favoring its own comparison shopping service against uh, rivals. But there's a lot of talk in the competition community about. Um, whether we actually have the right tools to understand the competition problems in the tech sector. And I'll give you one example of that. Um, Many of the services that those tech companies um, provide us, provide us for free. Um, So it's a multi-sided market where we are obtaining services for free as consumers, whether it's social media or... Um, blogs or other um, online services. But on the other side of the market, advertisers are paying to advertise to us. So it, there's a complex dynamic going on there, but um, on the free side of the market, those approaches that or tools that we apply in competition where we look for a possible increase in prices to say that conduct is anti-competitive don't apply where consumers are getting things for free. And so you have to ask yourself, well... What are we actually paying when we get those services? We are paying with our data because that is what is the most valuable thing and that is what's generating power in these companies. And we don't know half the time what we're giving out and we don't know that these companies know more about us than we know about ourselves. So there are some really fascinating and I think highly challenging issues for um, competition laws and enforcers to actually get a handle on and hopefully they won't fall too far behind in doing it.
3: Stephen? Yes. Yeah, so, John, just firstly, um, great example of public hospitals. Um, if you go to the UK, you can uh, look up uh, publicly available information uh, presented nicely on uh, websites which uh, will tell you where individual hospitals rank in terms of uh, not just uh, at a macro level but down to individual procedures. Um, if you've got a particular specialist or you need a particular specialist in an area, you can go and see where that specialist ranks. You can see the number of operations they've done of a particular sort that you're after uh, and uh, in the last year and the last two years. It um, has an amazing effect. doesn't just help consumers, but my God, it puts a rocket up the backside of the poor performers uh, because if you were you know, a cardiologist and you're damn, I'm one of the worst two cardiologists in England, Uh, you either retire or you pretty quickly pick up your act. You certainly try to
1: pick healthy patients.
3: (laughs) Ah, well, they're all risk-adjusted. And uh, so there's uh, get over the cherry-picking. And, uh, yeah, our draft report uh, that we on human services, we'd love to get some of that stuff going here in Australia. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot more that can be done in that, uh, in that space in terms of information, particularly for some of the human services. Um, on uh, the internet and, and new technology firms, uh, they, they are just fascinating. We, we are going to have, you know, this is going to keep competition economists and competition lawyers happy for the next two decades. Um, some of the issues are here, so online travel agents and price parity clauses um, been a big issue in, the, uh, in Europe for a number of years. ACCC made a ruling on that last year, I think. Um, the only trouble is that all the rulings around uh, Europe, even within Europe, are all inconsistent with each other because no-one's sure what they're doing. Um, on data, yeah, exactly right. Uh, the PC's data report, um, we started trying to deal with that issue by saying that consumers should have a right to their data. Now, in that, again, our recommendation was uh, trying to learn from some of the experience of what they're trying to do in Europe. Europe is trying to allow consumers to own data. We see problems with that, because how do you actually check that Google has deleted your data, or if uh, Facebook has deleted your data, but you should have some rights over your data? Um, just you know, making things clearer to consumers can have a huge effect. So a couple of Chicago economists um, recently wrote in the New York Times that perhaps one way of getting competition with Facebook is to give you rights over your social graph and then uh, requiring access. So a new social media platform, if you want to go to it, you can go to it. You can take essentially all the links so that your Facebook friends will contact you on the new platform and they won't even realise that it's a different platform to uh, Facebook. Um, The sort of thing we did Know, a decade ago with mobile phones when uh, the ACCC decided or ruled that uh, you should be allowed to take your mobile phone number with you when you choose, jump between carriers. That's what put mobile phone competition on steroids in this country. So there's the stuff that we can do.
2: We yeah. Do the same with bank accounts.
3: Do the same with bank accounts. That's been looked at in Australia. Open banking is reforms that are being looked at in Europe and the PC is currently looking at financial services and I'm on that one and I can't tell you anymore.
1: Now, I I think it'd be fair to say that my assertion at the beginning of this discussion that we couldn't have had two more skillful and insightful people to learn from on this bright, broad array of competition issues uh, tonight was was a correct assertion. Thank you so much, Caron and Stephen, for hosting this discussion. Thank you so much to our hosts, the State Library of Victoria, and to all of you for joining in what I found a fascinating discussion, I've learned a huge amount, and we'll try to cram as much of it into our forthcoming report on competition as we possibly can. So thanks again.
0: Thanks, Jim. Grattan <laughs> Thank Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous, and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public our affiliate companies if you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au this has been a grattan institute podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to our podcasts on itunes